Hi and welcome to the We Are Zion Sermon Podcast. We are a local church based here in Chennai, India. We are so glad you are with us and hope that this will encourage, inspire and instill fresh faith in you. We begin our Advent series today called Recapturing Glory, where we look at how God's glory shows up in the most unexpected of ways and spaces. We hope that through this series you will develop the ability to recognize the presence and goodness of God in your everyday lives. We have Jerry Nicholas kickstarting the series with a word on glory in the dirt. Hello again everybody. It is uh, as always really exciting to be with you. Uh we are here starting off uh, a new sermon series as we look forward to Advent. So as we're building up towards Advent and uh, celebrating uh the birth of Jesus um we're kicking off a new series called uh, Recapturing Glory and uh, I get to start the uh, this series and the title for what we're going to be talking about today is called Glory in the Dirt uh so and the passage we're going to be looking up looking at is uh, Matthew 1 1 through 17 the genealogy of Jesus I can literally hear everyone's excitement as I said the genealogy of Christ right so everyone <laughs> Uh, she was looking forward to it, but um, I think you may have come across this passage as one of the driest passages in the New Testament. But uh, it might be dry when you just read the names. But I think uh, there's something in there for us that is uh, very important. So I'm looking forward to going through this passage with you. Uh, before we get into the passage, let me go ahead and pray, and uh, we will get to it. Heavenly Father, we. Thank you so much for bringing us together. As always, Father, we acknowledge that you're the one that binds us together. It is you and uh, that has brought us together, Lord. Uh, we are gathered here because of you, because our of our trust in you, because of our belief and faith in you, Lord, and uh, because uh, we know that uh, you are uh, the way, Lord, and you are the truth, and you are the life. And Father, as we kick off this series and we look forward to celebrating. your first coming lord we look forward to celebrating when you came and you lived among us lord and uh, as we look forward in celebration of that time that you came so long ago we also think of the time that you're going to come again uh, in the future and restore all things so father um we celebrate that first advent and we look forward to your second advent lord so father we Once again, thank you for giving us the comfort and uh, the safety uh, and the privilege of gathering here, Lord. And uh, as we thank you for that, we pray for those who do not have this, oh Lord, who yearn to gather in your name but are prevented by the circumstances that they live in. So, Father, we ask that uh, you would hear their cries, that you would heed their prayers, and you would provide them with security and safety to gather and uh, to. uh be a community under your name just as we are here at Zion Lord. Once again Lord we ask that uh, you would uh, give me the words to speak that uh, your will will be done here that what you have for us uh, as a church what you have for the people that are listening uh, to the sermon on YouTube or the po- podcast that uh, you would have something for all of us and that uh, what you have for us would uh penetrate deep within us Lord and uh, show us who you truly are father we love you and once again we thank you for gathering us together in your name 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the passage that we have for today is uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. It is known as the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, if you remember, it's a long list of names. Um, so, it is, I mean, Matthew chooses to start out his gospel with this long list of names. So, that alone should show us that there is a significant importance to what is written here, because that's how he chooses to start out his gospel. And uh, also, as we go through this list of names, uh, pay attention to the names. Uh, there might be names in there that you might think, well, why are they in here, right? And uh, pay particular attention to the names of the women, um, because uh, in genealogies, that's a bit unusual. So let's pay particular attention to the names of the women. And uh, as I read this, I probably have never read this out loud. Um, so join me as we stumble through the names. But I think it's uh, very important that these names are read out loud and that this uh, passage is uh, given our attention as we look forward to, as we take part in this Advent season. So this is the genealogy of Jesus. Okay, and this is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. So, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatil, Sheatil, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Elikim, Elikim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So this is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. So <clears throat> thank you for reading that along with me. So this is a record of Jesus' ancestors, as that's the title in my NIV study Bible. So it is uh, his genealogy, the people that were in his family tree, so to say. This is not a entire list of Jesus' ancestors. Okay, this is a particular curated list, if you could say. That's in these people were particularly chosen for this to be put in this genealogy, um, because 
um, the way these genealogies were passed down from generation to generation uh, at this time was orally. So people would have to memorize the names of the ancestors if they're going to remember where they came from. Uh, so in order to facilitate that, um, many of the genealogies were condensed. Like for instance, there are, there's some, I mean, there's some names mentioned here where for over 600 years, there's just six or seven names mentioned. So we know in a span of 600 years, you're going to have way more than just six ancestors. So this is a condensed form of uh, Jesus's genealogy. So, and it's also set uh, in sets of 14. So there's a pattern. So it's to help people remember because they have to memorize it as it's passed down orally. So it's kind of structured that way. So many genealogies during this time did that, where certain people were omitted, certain people were included, so that it can be concise. Um, so one thing to take from this is that uh, um, Matthew, there's a purpose for these names to be mentioned. These are just not random names, and these are not every single name in the line of Jesus. These are particular names that have been chosen. So, so they warrant our attention because they're here for a reason. And two, most genealogies um, did not include women. So the mere fact, so if they did, it was very, very rare. So the mere fact that uh, Matthew includes, I believe, five women here. So we have uh, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. So we have five women mentioned here. So that also warrants attention. Something that's unusual is happening, as in women that are not normally included, are included. So that is something that we can look at too. So now, so as we go through these names, um, <clears throat> I think even in your light reading of this, as you did with me, um, you would, these are the ancestors of Jesus, right? So you would expect to see uh, Jesus-like, Christ-like figures, maybe. Maybe you would expect to see what I, the phrase I read was this pattern of righteousness, uh, generation after generation. That's what you might expect because these are the ancestors of Jesus. We're going to see this pattern of righteousness, righteousness. But as you go through the names, all the stories that are coming to your mind, if you're familiar with uh, their stories, are don't really depict that pattern of righteousness that you might be expecting or that one might be expecting, right? So... That is something that we <clears throat> want to focus on. So the natural expectation is not here. As in ancestors of Jesus, you expect them to be very saintly. But as you go through some of these stories, you don't see that pattern of righteousness, but you see something that's totally opposite in some of the stories that we will see. So now, so... We want to keep those things in mind as we go through the story. So I've kind of picked uh, particular people to look at their stories. Um, so my wife told me to coin the next part of this message, story time with Jaren, because that's kind of what I'm going to do. We're going to, uh, I'm going to tell you the stories of some of the people that uh, are that we're going to talk about or that are mentioned in the genealogy that I think are particularly interesting or more so uh, stories that have a message to tell us today. So we're going to start story time with Jaren with a story from a children's Bible, right? What better way to start story time than with the story? 
from a children's book. So this is from Jesus Calling. It's a children's story Bible. And this is the story of Jacob. So Jacob, a man with two names, that's the title. So Isaac grew up and married a lady named Rebecca. They had twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first. He was all red and hairy. As the oldest boy, Esau would someday get most of his father's things and a special blessing. Jacob was born hanging onto Esau's heel. When they grew up, quiet Jacob enjoyed staying home. Esau liked being outdoors and hunting wild animals. One day, Esau came home really hungry. Jacob had made a big bowl of stew. Give me some of that, Esau said. I'm starving. Not so fast, Jacob answered. I will give you my stew if you promise that I will get dad's things. That was not a good trade. But Esau was hungry, and so he agreed. So we have Jacob telling Esau he'll set, I mean, he wants his birthright for a bowl of soup, and then Esau agrees. So if you read the Old Testament scripture, um, it's there's some wordplay in there because uh, Joseph uh, gave red soup to the red one because Esau was the red one. So he gave red soup to the red one and got his birthright. So, and then uh, going on. So when Isaac grew old, it was time to give Esau the blessing. Uh, and this blessing that we're talking about is um, this uh, authority as the head of the family and as well as the inheritance was what we're talking about. Um, so it was time for Esau to receive this blessing from Isaac. Uh, Jacob was tricky. So you know, it says Jacob describes himself as a brother. So Jacob was tricky and he actually conspired with his mom to bring this about. So this was just not Jacob hacking on his own, like uh, the situation with the soup. This was Jacob and his mom uh, conspired to do this, right? So Jacob disguised himself as his brother and covered his arms with furry animal skins so he would feel hairy. Uh, so even that it makes me think about how hairy was Esau that Jacob had to cover himself with fur, so because Isaac could not see well, so he gave Jacob the blessing that should have gone to Esau. Esau was very, very angry when he found out his brother had gotten the dad's things and his blessing. So, second, sorry, third down from the top is Jacob, and he's listed in the genealogy of Christ. And this is part of the story of Jacob that we know he is. Uh, known as a, a trickster, cheater, whatever name you want to give it. He definitely acquired these couple things through illegitimate means, right? He First, he took advantage of his brother when he was hungry. Um, I'm sure you could call Esau short-sighted for selling such a big thing for a red bowl of soup. Uh, but I don't know, maybe Esau didn't know what delayed gratification was. I don't know. But so here we have Joseph taking advantage of Esau and uh, getting his birthright for a bowl of soup. And then if that wasn't enough, he conspired with his mom and he cheated Esau out of his birthright and got the blessing from Isaac. So we, so third down from the list, we start out with the uh, person who's a trickster or a cheater. Okay. So that is a particular part of uh, Jacob's story that we wanted to highlight. So now after Jacob, we move on to Judah, who is one of the sons of Jacob. Uh, Judah is not the oldest. I think he's fourth from the top. Um, Judah's uh, story 
initially is when he is involved in the uh, capture and uh, selling into slavery of Joseph. So he's part of the brothers that uh, are jealous of Joseph. So they put him in the pit and um, then they choose to sell him rather than kill him. So that's how we see Judas introduced. So he's part of that. Um, And then we see there's the story about Judah and Tamar. And in the genealogy, they are linked because Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Okay, So Judah Judah gets married and has uh, three sons. Uh, He has a son, his oldest son is Ur, his second son is Onam, and his third son is Selah. So um, Judah's first son, Ur, is married to a woman named Tamar. Um, so they're married. However, um, the scripture says, it says this exactly pretty much, that uh, Ur was uh, wicked uh, in the eyes of the Lord and the Lord put him to death. So here Ur dies and he does not leave an heir. Uh, so in those days, it was uh, culturally appropriate um, or that if your if you die without an heir, um, your wife can marry your brother so that an heir can be produced to get the inheritance because the inheritance is it's a patriarchal system. The inheritance and the blessings is passed down through the male line. So for Tamar to be looked after, like or to receive the inheritance she would have to have a male heir from her husband. So since Ur died without having an heir or having a son, it was now, um, if she, now she could choose to marry the second son, Onam, and, and thereby, uh, out of that marriage, um, have an heir that would be considered Ur's son technically and who would receive Ur's um, inheritance. So... So that's what happens. So Tamar marries Onam. Okay. So Tamar marries Onam. So Onam here has this responsibility to produce an heir with Tamar. Okay. So that is what is supposed to happen. So now On- Onam is married to Tamar. Now Onam gets to thinking that if uh, Tamar gets pregnant and she has a son, then I will lose a big chunk of my inheritance because the firstborn always gets the biggest portion of it. Uh, so if uh, I produce an heir with her and she has a son by me, that this son who will be considered her son will get a biggest portion of the inheritance and I will have less. So he tells himself <clears throat> that I'm not going to produce an heir with her so that I can have more of the inheritance to myself because if there is no heir, he will get a bigger portion. So he enjoys the benefits of being uh, married to Tamar, but he does not um, help her get pregnant. I'm trying to find the right words here. It think it scripture. It says this very clearly, just go to Genesis 38 and the story is spelled out. So we have Onam here who is supposed to work towards providing an heir for Tamar. So, but because he wants a larger portion of the inheritance for himself, he has no intention of providing an um, heir from there. So he enjoys the benefits of being married to her, but never with the intention of getting her pregnant. So 
Now, so the Lord knows this and sees this and says that that what Onam did was wicked. And it says the Lord put him to death too. So now Onam is dead and there's still no heir. So Tamar here has had two husbands. Each, each has not left an heir. So now there is still a third son, right? So now the next in line to be married to Tamar is Selah, the youngest son. Now Judah is scared. Judah is like, this woman has been married to two of my sons and they are both dead. I do not want to be with my youngest son so he tells her this okay he tells her go and be a widow in your father's house um and uh, when my son is of age then he will come and you can be married so that uh, you can have an heir through him so judah sends her away go live as a widow for the moment right it's a temporary thing and when my son is of age he will come and you can be married so she holds on to that promise. She leaves. She goes, lives with the father as a widow. And then we kind of skip and we fast forward. And then um, we hear that Tamar learns that Judah is coming to town for a sheep herders festival. Okay. So, so the moment she um, hears, that, hears that Judah is coming, um, it also says that uh, she realizes or she knows that Selah has come of age but no proposal has come to her for marriage. So she knows that. So she is aware that Judah has no intention of keeping his word. Uh, he has no intention of Selah marrying Tamar. So we have, so now Tamar does not have a husband, no heir. Um, so Judah is coming. So, but Tamar still feels like there's something, I mean, they have not fulfilled their obligation to her as they're supposed to. So Tamar takes things into her own hands, okay? So she decides to um, dress as a prostitute and cover her face and go sit in the path that Judah's going to take to the festival. And so, and she does this because she is certain that uh, Judah will come and uh, ask her for her services, okay? So now... Just the caveat here, like as part of this um, culture thing that they do where the brothers would marry their, I mean, the older brother's widow to produce an heir, this also can, this also applied to father-in-laws. So if um, he only had two sons, Aaron Onam, then Judah could have fulfilled that obligation and married Tamar to produce an heir. So this is what Tamar had in mind as she was going and disguising herself as a prostitute. So she was going to, she took things into her own hand and she was going to get the obligation that was new to her, right? So she goes, she does as a prostitute, she sits on his path and just as she had envisioned, Judah comes and asks her for her services, right? So I'm, as I'm reading this, I'm wondering what is Judah like that she's so certain he will come and ask her for her services, right? When she's dressed as a prostitute. So that's what those two things going on in my mind. So this is what happens. He comes and asks her for her services and he tells her that he will pay her with a young goat. And then he will give her the goat when he comes back from the festival. And then she says, okay, give me some, give me your cord and your signet. These are things that identify, uh, Joseph, I mean, J Judah, sorry, as the 
owner of these things is Cords and the Signet. And so she asked for them pretty much as collateral so or credit so that he would carry uh, through on his payment. Okay. So Judah uses the services of this person, not knowing it's Tamar, right? And then gives her his cord and signet and he leaves for the festival and he comes back. By the time he comes back, Tamar has left the scene. She's nowhere to be found. Judah and his friend look for her because he does want to get his cord and signet back. These things that identify him. And then he's brought payment. So she's nowhere to be seen. So after looking and not being able to find, he calls out the search in fear of embarrassment because it is an embarrassing situation. So to save face, he calls out the search. Okay. So a couple months pass and then he hears that Tamar is pregnant. So now he's like, she hasn't um, been faithful to being a widow. She's committed some kind of adultery. So he tells, so when he finds out she's pregnant, he calls for her to be brought out and burned. So that's what Judah wants to happen. And then in response to this, Tamar sends him his signet and his cords. And when and then Judah realizes what has happened. And then he takes responsibility. He says that she is more righteous than he is at that moment. And then he realizes that the person he was with was actually his daughter-in-law. And then so that is the story. So sometimes we might read that story because we're so used to that story in the Bible. We kind of gloss over it. But like if imagine reading that story in a modern day gossip column or something like that. And you kind of get the impact of the messiness of that story. So that is the story of Judah and Tamar. And Judah and Tamar mentioned here in the genealogy of Jesus, right? And then so next uh, person on the scene, we have Rahab. So Rahab who is mentioned is a prostitute in Jericho. When Joshua sent two spies to Jericho, uh, they lodged in Rahab's house. And then when the people of the town came looking for the spies, she deceived them and said they're all we left while she was hiding them. And then so when the people of Jericho are on their wild goose chase, uh, she sends the two spies out the window. And her window was literally part of the wall of Jericho. So she sends... Uh, them out and in return for her keeping them safe they tell her that no one in her family will be harmed as long as they stay in the house and don't come outside so Rahab and her family are saved um, when Israel I mean when the people of God take over Jericho but here we have someone who's clearly identified as a prostitute here in the genealogy of Jesus so we have someone with the story of Judah and Tamar we have a prostitute here there's really no clear pattern of righteousness, right? This is not what we're seeing here. So, and then after Rahab, we come to Ruth. Um, Ruth doesn't have any crazy story like Tamar. However, Ruth's story is still, she uh, is a Moabite, a foreigner. She comes back with her mother-in-law, Naomi, to uh, uh, Israel and then when she comes in she is a foreigner and an outsider so when they come in they have no uh, male person to look after them so they're two women by themselves uh, when they first arrive a lot of their time is spent just finding food so Ruth uh, 
goes to the fields and harvests leftover grain from the harvesters so they could have food. Uh, it's she's many times mentioned as the Moabite um, in, in her story rather than just by her name. So she is uh, as they as they come back. Ruth is part of Ruth is marginalized. She's an outsider. She's a foreigner. She's on the fringes of society, uh, and uh, her experience as an outsider is something that uh, I especially more than me especially my wife can relate to because as um, we came back to India as we came to India in uh, about three years ago that word outsider is something that my f- my wife became very familiar with because it's was a word that was used in reference to her it's a word that distances you it's a word that creates a lot of distance between you and the other person. It's a word that's used so that your opinion isn't valued because you're an outsider. No way you could know how things are done here and things of that sort. So we particularly have some experience with being a foreigner or being an outsider. So, but a person who has this experience of being an outsider, a foreigner is included. So here's Judah and Tamar. There's Rahab, there's Ruth. And then we come to King David. And uh, it said King David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So Bathsheba's name isn't even mentioned, but who had been Uriah's wife. So the entire story is brought into memory here, right? So the story of David and Bathsheba. So the story is, so David is on the roof of his palace. And as he's on the roof of his palace, his gaze sits upon a woman who is uh, bathing. So this woman happens to be Bathsheba. So, so rather than him see and leave the roof, he is uh, drawn by her. And then he gives into temptation and he sends people to inquire who he is. And when he finds out it's Bathsheba and it's Uriah's and that she does have a husband named Uriah uh, that doesn't prevent him from moving forward. So he sends people to bring her to the palace and then... They sleep together and then he sends her away, right? So this is what happens. And then uh, later he finds out that she is pregnant. So now we have uh, the king, a very powerful person, uh, finding out that uh, something has happened from this uh, affair that he's had, that this woman is now pregnant. And he does what most people would do when there is evidence of some wrongdoing. He tries to cover it up. So he calls for her husband to come from the battle lines, come back home. So he prepares a feast for Uriah and his intention is to get him drunk so that he'll go home and be with his wife and then he can uh, put the pregnancy on Uriah. And Uriah comes, he eats, uh, he drinks, but even in his tipsy or drunken state, he chooses not to go in his house because he's like, there are people in the battlefield. I cannot go in my house. So the plan does not work. So now David feels like he has no other option. He goes to step two. He decides that he will just get Uriah killed. So he gives Uriah the order. I mean, he gives the order that Uriah will serve in the very front of the battlefield, in the very front of the battle, as in you... He's sending him to serve in a spot on the battlefield where it is certain or almost certain that he will be killed, right? So, and then he gives those orders to Uriah himself to be delivered. So 
the orders that are going to lead to his death are given to that person so that he could deliver that to his commander. So if we were to see this in a movie, we'd be like, that is so cold. But this is exactly what happens here. So we have David here. And and just to clarify a couple of things, uh, there are probably two camps in the Bathsheba David story. One where there's a lot of blame on Bathsheba that uh, she was intentionally tempting David. And then the other is where David, uh, it was not Bathsheba, but it was David who gave into temptation when he saw her bathing. So I fall on the camp where it is it, where it is not Bathsheba that is playing this role of seductress or something like that. No, she was very likely just um, performing uh, these uh, purification rites in her home and David saw it and he was tempted and he gave it to temptation and he it was more of an abuse of power on the part of David because he was the king and he just called her to come more than anything else. So, and even when you see when the prophet Nathan comes, he talks to David. He doesn't go to Bathsheba and tell her. And think he says, David, you took something that didn't belong to you. So I think as far as that, I think the it is the focus is on David and nothing on Bathsheba. So now, so King David and this story with Bathsheba is mentioned. So stories that don't follow any pattern of righteousness whatsoever, right? The stories that uh, if we might have read this anywhere else, uh, we might be like, really? What were they thinking? Uh, maybe because we've read them over and over again in the Bible, we don't ask that or we don't think that. But I'm trying to um, almost put myself in a place where I am trying to pretend that I'm reading these stories for the first time and what kind of impact that may have on me. So we looked at... Um, Judah, I mean, we looked at Jacob, we've looked at Judah and Tamar, uh, Rahab a little bit, Ruth a little bit, and we've looked at David and Bathsheba. And then just a couple more small names to mention here. If you remember from our last series where we're talking about, uh, when we're talking through Isaiah and Jesus in Isaiah, um, we talked about some kings. One was Ahaz, who was known to be a wicked king. He had sacrificed his son. As a child sacrifice, he was the one that did not want to listen to God when he said, I don't want a sign. So Isaiah gives him a sign anyway that Emmanuel, that God will be, that a son will be born and he'll be Emmanuel, God with us. So that Hayas, who is termed, he's deemed a wicked king who did not follow the ways of the Lord, is in the genealogy right there. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, right? And then someone even more wicked than Ahaz, Manasseh, is also in here. So people that you would think is unusual to be fa- falling to be to be f- to be found here in this genealogy of Christ, and I think that's where the message is for us. Okay, so names here that don't really follow any kind of pattern of righteousness, but these names are mentioned in this genealogy of Jesus. So why, why, why are these names mentioned? So I think the first thing I kind of want us to kind of grasp from this is like their stories, these stories that they had, um, the things that they did, did not 
exclude them from God's plan of salvation. Like this is salvation history, right? Like God used these people to bring about his history of salvation in the world. God worked through these people to bring about his plan of salvation. So even though they had these messy stories, these outlandish stories, um, choices they made that had very harsh consequences, um, choices that we wish we would not make, right? So we have people with these stories that we just read, but these stories did not exclude them from being a part of God's story of salvation. The stories are mentioned here, right in the genealogy of Jesus. So their stories did not keep them from being included, from being a part of God's plan of salvation. So that is one so to keep in mind. Their stories, no matter what their story was or how crazy their story was, did not exclude them from God's plan of salvation or from God's story of salvation as it's being, as it's being worked out through history. Okay. So that is one. And two, um, I want you to um, kind of listen to this phrase that I found um, when I was uh, reading about this. Okay, so it says, "Jesus came from those he came for." So Jesus came from those he came for. So the people that Jesus came for resemble the, pe- the people he came from. So. When he was on earth and he was doing his ministry, uh, scripture clearly records that he was around um, prostitutes and sinners. And uh, I mean, and he even said that it's not the well that need a doctor, it's the sick. So these were the people that he was around. These are the people that he came for. So Jesus came from those he came for too. So these stories do not exclude them from God's plan of salvation. And they show us that Jesus clearly came from those he came for. So why is this important? Um, so salvation and redemption always go hand in hand, right? They're, it's not something that separates us. So salvation and redemption go hand in hand. So just like the people in this genealogy, where their stories did not exclude them from uh, God's plan of salvation or being a part of God's story of salvation. Our stories don't exclude us from being a part of God's salvation. Our stories, no matter what our stories are, does not exclude us from being a part of God's uh, story of salvation or God's plan of salvation that's being continually worked out even now. So just like their stories don't exclude them from being a part of his history of salvation, this plan of salvation, our stories, no matter what our stories are, um, whether they're worse or better, no matter what our stories are, if we tell ourselves that our stories exclude us from being a part of God working from God's plan of salvation, it does not. If we choose, if we want to be a part of it, we can. There's nothing in our lives, no story, no situation, no title, no role, nothing can exclude us from being a part of uh, God's plan of salvation, right? So no matter what you tell yourself, we have seen examples here in the genealogy of Christ, people with messy, dirty stories that are included 
in this history and this plan of salvation, right? And so that shows us that nothing we have can exclude us from God's plan of salvation, from being a part of Him working our salvation through history right now, uh, if we choose, if we want to be. And then, so again, going back to Christ came from those He came for. So Christ came and and from the work that he did uh, by living here and dying on the cross and raising again, he has grafted the people that believe in him into this genealogy. He has grafted the people that uh, believe in him into this family of God. Uh, so if you look at uh, this Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 uh, in the Greek text, it is quite literally... Uh, rather than the origin of Jesus, it's it, it literally says the genesis of Christ is what how this thing translates. So it's the origin story of Christ. Um, we all know that any good origin story has to have a good sequel. So we are the sequel to this origin story because through his work, Christ has drafted us into this family of God. And so now we are the sequel and nothing that we have done can keep us out of the sequel if we want to be a part of it. And as I was saying, salvation uh, go, always goes hand in hand with, with redemption. So through Christ and the work that he did, uh, these messy, dirty stories, right? These stories that don't keep us out or don't exclude us from salvation. But once we are grafted in, these messy, dirty stories actually become our redemption stories. Uh, they are stories, they become our testimonies of how these stories did not keep us out. Uh, these stories did not exclude us. And yes, these stories might be a part of my life, but now God has redeemed these stories. He has brought me through those stories and he has redeemed these stories. And now these are my stories of redemption. They are not my dirty story. They're not my messy story. Um, they are my stories of redemption. They are my testimony to what Christ has done. Um, they are a testimony to what has happened in my life because God worked out his plan of salvation to bring Christ about through these stories in the genealogy. And because of that, if I choose to put my faith in Christ and nothing I've done excludes me, I become a part of this family of God. And as I come into this family of God, my messy story, my dirty story, uh, my secret story, no matter what title you're given your story, uh, no matter what you tell yourself about your story, how bad or wicked or messy or whatever it is, or shameful, whatever word you like to use, no matter what title you give your story, one, it does not exclude you from being a part of this family, right? If you choose to... If you want to be a part of this family, you choose to, you can. Your story does not exclude you. Just like the stories of these Jesus' ancestors do not exclude them. And two, furthermore, these stories that you come with really no longer stay your dirty story. They no longer stay your messy story. They no longer stay your shameful story. They become your story of redemption. They become your redemption stories. So it is... Glory in the dirt, as we titled this sermon earlier. It is glory in the 
messiness that you bring in uh, glory because it is not the messiness that's glorified, but it's God redeeming us from that messiness. It's God redeeming us from the stories that's glorified. So it's not the glory staying in the dirt. It's just the glory in the dirt because that messy, crazy, dirty story uh, is now redeemed in Christ and becomes our redemption story. So just want to leave you with this, that no matter what your story is, it does not exclude you. So no matter what thoughts are surfacing in the corners of your mind that tell you that this story just doesn't fit this Christ person, this story just doesn't fit in with God, um, it doesn't line up with this holiness or righteousness, and or whatever excuse you're giving yourself. Yes, your story might be really difficult. Your story might be messy. Uh, your story might be filled with shame for you. But that story does not exclude you from the family of God. If you would like to be a part of this family, your story does not exclude you. And once you become a part of this family and you choose to follow Christ, that story will no longer stay your shameful, messy, dirty story. It'll become your redemption story. It'll be a story of how God brought you out of that. And it'll be a testimony to how Christ has redeemed those messy, dirty parts of our life to bring him glory. So it'll be a story of how there was glory in the dirt. Let me go ahead and pray for all of you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you have done, Lord. We thank you for the examples you have given of these people that uh, were part of the genealogy of Christ, people that we can look at and see how their stories did not exclude them from being a part of uh, your plan of salvation for this world, Lord, and how you brought about, how you brought Jesus into this world. We thank you that we know that our stories, no matter what they are, don't exclude us from you or being a part of your plan of salvation. And you continue to work that out in current, Lord. And Father, we thank you that uh, as we come in with these stories that are messy, uh, that might be dirty, that they don't stay those dirty, messy stories, but they become our stories of redemption, that they become our redemption stories. Father, only you can redeem all things. Only you can use whatever difficult thing has happened for your glory, Lord. We may not see it now, but we put our faith and trust in you that all our stories that we have, no matter how difficult they are, um, no matter how messy they are, Lord, that we would bring these stories to you, that uh, we would not exclude ourselves from you because of these stories, because we know you don't exclude us because of these stories, Lord. So give us the courage to come to you with these stories and we ask that you would work on redeeming these stories Lord and that every story we have that might be dirty or messy would become a part of our entire redemption story Lord. and that you would use us in working out your plan on salvation even right now we love you we ask all this in the name of Jesus we pray Amen thanks for listening to this message we hope you were blessed to hear more messages like this Make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. If you like what you are hearing, consider rating us, subscribing 
and even sharing it with friends. That would really help us. For more content from We Are Zion and to connect with us, go to wearezion.in. Remember, whoever finds Jesus finds life.